0: You're listening to Undetermined, Deaths, Disappearances, and Mysteries. I'm your host, Dr. N. I've got an interesting mystery for you today. What if death wasn't the end of our existence? What if our consciousness lives independently of our material bodies, and doesn't require a living brain to contain it? What if we can be reincarnated? and carry the memories of our past lives into our new body. Reincarnation is a belief held by many different cultures and religions across the globe throughout the centuries. Even the Greek philosopher Plato believed in an immortal soul that could be reincarnated. The word itself, reincarnation, is derived from Latin meaning quote entering the flesh again with the greek equivalent metempsychosis deriving from the greek words for change and to put a soul into the case i want to cover is what many consider to be the best proof we have of reincarnation today we're discussing the pollock sisters and the phenomenon of reincarnation Florence and John Pollock had two daughters named Jacqueline and Joanna Pollock, and they were six and eleven, respectively. They were killed in a tragic accident on May 5th of 1957, when a drunk driver hit them while they were crossing the street. They were killed almost instantly. Their parents' grief was immense and they prayed for another pair of daughters in their lives. Florence would give birth to two twin girls, Jillian and Jennifer, about a year after the accident. The couple began noticing eerie similarities between the twins and their daughters who had passed away. For instance, Jennifer had a white line on her face in the exact same spot where Jacqueline had had a scar. Jennifer also shared the same birthmark as Jacqueline. The similarities started to convince the couple that Jennifer and Jillian were actually Jacqueline and Joanna reborn. The similarities grew as the twins aged, adding weight to their theory. The twins had been born in the same town that Jacqueline and Joanna had grown up, but they moved away when they were still babies. The family returned to this town of Hexham when the twins were around the age of four, and they were able to identify at that time landmarks that their sisters had been familiar with, including the school that they had attended before their deaths. The twins began asking their parents for their old toys, even quoting the names of their dolls and stuffed animals that their sisters had named themselves. Even creepier, the twins had recurring nightmares about being hit by a car. They even knew some pretty gory details about the accident itself. Jillian was overheard telling Jennifer once that she could see blood coming out of her eyes. They even had an intense phobia of cars. And they had preferences that were in line with their sisters. They liked the same food, wore the same clothing, and even liked the same music. Dr. Ian Stevenson, a child psychologist, took an interest in the twins' story. He included their story in a book that he wrote on reincarnation. His conclusion was that children aren't as likely as adults to make events up, and parents who thought reincarnation wasn't real were likely to discourage children from expressing those details that might emerge about their past lives. Inexplicably, when the twins turned five years old, the day after their party, the memories of their past lives began to fade. Very abruptly, the behaviors stopped and the twins lost all of the memories of their past lives. Let's talk a little bit more about Ian Stevenson's work. He was a pretty prominent psychiatrist in his time, becoming the chair of psychiatry at the University of Virginia in 1957, when he was only 38 years old. He always had a fascination with the paranormal, and he used his position as chair and a windfall donation to pursue this field within parapsychology. Interestingly, the inventor of Xerox copying was a fan of Stevenson's interest in reincarnation. After his death, he left a million dollars to the University of Virginia with one condition. It had to be used to fund Stevenson's paranormal investigations. Stevenson was able to pursue this line of research full-time because of the funding. Stevenson recorded many details from thousands of cases he believed provided evidence of reincarnation. He focused mainly on children's memories of their past lives. There are many interesting pieces of these stories that challenge our rational beliefs. The data that Stevenson collected doesn't necessarily fit our traditional, scientific models. Specifically, those of neuropsychology. So it's easy to dismiss this line of research to a certain point because it has no place in the science that exists. But that doesn't mean it isn't true. It's also a hypothesis that's pretty impossible to test. Kind of like proving a negative. Stevenson merely asked the scientific community to keep an open mind instead of dismissing his research purely based on their preconceived notion that it was invalid. He published a two-volume book titled Reincarnation and Biology, which contained 225 cases of children who had memories of past lives, with some shared details and physical anomalies that could be confirmed with medical records of the dead person's autopsy and photos. Stevenson noticed some patterns that emerged from his studies. He believed there was only a very small window of time in which children could retain these memories, specifically between the ages of two and five. From his scientific perspective, He believed that the statements the children were making about their past lives were falsifiable, which is a necessary part of the empirical research process. He believed that it was possible that many children might relay information from past lives that parents quickly dismiss. If that information was carefully recorded, the account could later be confirmed or disconfirmed. Another pattern he found was that these memories more often occurred when someone in the child's life awakens that memory. It would be like asking you to recall your dream from last night. Most of us don't necessarily have a clear memory of our dreams, but if something reminds us of that dream, the memory of it can return. He also believed that past lives may be more common than we think. We just don't all have the capacity to retain those memories. So only a certain percentage of children can remember and relay that information. Stevenson believed emotions were tied to this retention, specifically strong emotions. Traumatic deaths can leave an emotional imprint that he believed made the memories stronger and more salient. Other patterns included souls staying local, not straying too far from the geographic location which the previous life had been lived, along with the child exhibiting strange phobias that are tied to the manner in which the past life had ended. For instance, children who claimed that they had drowned in a past life were intensely afraid of water and some children even had violent reactions when faced with their past life's murderer. Stevenson did his best to keep his investigations rooted in the scientific method. He used what methods he had to rule out all rational explanations, leaving only the most evidential cases. Interestingly, Jim Tucker, who's an associate psychiatry professor in the University of Virginia's Medical Center's Division of Perceptual Studies, continued the study of children's claims of past lives after Dr. Stevenson's death. In his research, he too found patterns that build on the base Stevenson had established. He found that 60% of the children who recall their past lives are male. 70% of the deaths of their past selves were violent or unnatural. Of those violent cases, 70% were male. 90% of children claim they share the same gender as their past self, and 20% of children claim to remember the time between death and rebirth. The children he had researched generally have above-average IQs And as a whole did not exhibit emotional disorders beyond what would be expected in an average group of children. His book titled Return to Life details many cases where plausible explanations couldn't be found. His explanation of reincarnation lies in quantum physics, which states that our physical world may actually grow out of our consciousness. Specifically, his hypothesis states that quantum physics at its most basic level in the universe shows events involving small particles only occur once they are observed. This process implies that the material world may actually be derived from our own consciousness and not the other way around. If that's true, that consciousness creates our material world, then it may not be dependent on that world to exist, meaning consciousness does not depend on our living brain to exist. This line of thought leads us to the conclusion that if consciousness doesn't need a living brain to exist, it stands to reason that it could continue to exist after the brain dies, and then get reattached to another brain and continue on in another life a lot of the details of these reincarnation cases can actually be explained by confirmation bias coincidences that can be explained and were only noticed because they actually confirmed a belief the parents already had or wanted to be true and ignoring all evidence to the contrary we don't really have a baseline for what could be explained by chance or coincidence. How much information about another person who has died that is truly recounted by a child is considered outside the realm of possibility and can only be explained by reincarnation? There are instances where, mainly because children's language is not highly developed between the ages of two and six, that the researchers confirm details when they aren't exactly a match. For example, in the case of four-year-old Ryan Hammonds, he said his old address had the word rock in it, when in fact, the man he identified as his past self named Martin had lived on Roxbury Drive. It's pretty close. He also said his past self had known a man named Senator Five when Martin had actually known a senator, though his name was Senator Ives. These close matches in a more conservative experiment would probably not be counted. And who knows how many of these children may have been coached or inadvertently given details about these people they claimed to be in a past life that they unconsciously embedded in their own memories. Memories are so malleable and susceptible to suggestion, especially when we're talking about young children. There is a lot about Stevenson and Tucker's hypotheses that cannot be falsified or challenged in an empirical sense. And the current system we have now for testing hypotheses isn't really built for this line of research. Going back to the twins, there is some skepticism that they were told nothing about their late sisters, especially since they had four brothers who easily could have discussed their sisters and passed down information unbeknownst to their parents. In this case, there may be a rational explanation. We just don't have all the details about what the twins were told and by whom. The idea that reincarnation could be real gives a lot of people hope that something happens after we die, that our minds live on, and that we have another chance at life after this one is over. I think a lot of people would love to find proof of this phenomenon. There are certainly a lot of coincidences that are hard to explain, and though not impossible, they are highly improbable in the cases that Stevenson and Tucker spent their lives researching. But to date, there's no definitive empirical proof that reincarnation happens, leaving this phenomenon undetermined. Thank you for listening to episode three. I hope you're all enjoying the podcast. Please let me know your thoughts on the case through Instagram at undeterminedpod, or by emailing me at undeterminedpod at gmail.com. If you have any undetermined stories of your own, I'd love to share them on the podcast. Please email them to the link in the episode notes. And as always, stay curious. If you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe, download episodes, and leave a review. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. You can find sources for all of the episodes at the link in the episode notes. All music you hear on this podcast was written and produced by me, Dr. N.